Good evening, everybody, and welcome to this evening's lecture. My name's Simon Thurley, and I'm the provost of Gresham College, and we've been giving free public lectures since 1597. Tonight, we are at LSO's St. Luke's, the London Symphony Orchestra's Music Education Centre, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome our lecturer this evening, Dr. Xenia Pestova-Bennett, who is an assistant professor in music at the University of Nottingham. She's an innovative performer, composer, and educator, and has earned a reputation as a leading interpreter of the works of living composers alongside masterpieces from the past. She's engaged in research and in performance of uh, with, with non-standard and experimental instruments, including a range of new gestural controllers as part of the McGill Digital Orchestra project in Canada. Her widely acclaimed recordings are available on Diatribe Records, Innova Recordings, Naxos Records, and Taku Roku. Xenia is a Schönhut toy piano concert artist and has championed many new works for this instrument. Her projects related to tonight's lecture include instigating the Toy Piano Workshop and the Toy Piano Day, um, the World Toy Piano Day, I should say, and instigating and performing in the World Toy Piano Summit at Festival Rainy Days in Luxembourg. She will be presenting uh, tonight uh, on the subject of performing with toy pianos. Dr. Pistova Bennett, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Simon. Thank you very much for hosting me. It's a, it's a real pleasure and uh, privilege to be here in, in this beautiful space, uh, speaking to you live in a live stream from LSO St. Luke's in London. Um, so as you already know, I am a concert pianist, university lecturer, and I'm also very much interested in well-being and musicians' health. But tonight I will be talking about and playing a very different instrument, the toy piano. So we're all familiar with the grown-up piano, and of course you can see one behind me. Uh, this wonderful and versatile instrument has, we can say, entered the very fabric of our lives and entrenched itself in our collective cultural subconsciousness. So regardless of whether we had piano lessons as a child or not, we're very familiar with its sound. However, increasing numbers of performers and composers are starting to branch out and embrace the miniature toy piano. And you will shortly see uh, a whole array of different toy pianos around me on stage tonight. And I have to thank marvelous musician colleagues, Kezia Decote Rodriguez and Steve Beresford for lending me instruments from their collections. So the toy piano can provide a sort of a respite from the very serious traditional implications of the grand piano. Uh, it can also break the ice between the performer and audiences and allows pianists to perform in locations that would otherwise be completely inaccessible. So in this lecture, we will explore how the toy piano is different from the grown-up piano, uh, discuss a little bit of the history of this instrument and sample just a little bit of the music that was written for toy piano over the last 73 years. So I'm giving you a little outline slide there. Uh, and while the history of toy instruments, of course, goes back a very, very long way, toy pianos were popularized and very much brought to the popular attention by Albert Schoenhut in the late 19th century. Uh, Schoenhut was born into a family of German toy makers and immigrated to Philadelphia in the US at the age of 17. He subsequently went on to found his own toy company with a focus on musical instruments. Schoenhut's major achievement, if we can say that, 
in toy piano design was to replace the original very fragile glass plates that they used to have inside the instruments uh, with metal plates and metal rods. And this was in 1872. The toy piano was originally targeted at children, uh, very much from well-to-do families who could afford such a luxurious and fancy toy, uh, but then later on made a surprising transition into the professional sphere. So during the 20th century, uh, composers started writing music for it, performers started playing it, and the toy piano is currently enjoying what we can call an unprecedented popularity as a concert instrument in its own right, with its own growing body of repertoire. So Seanhood is a popular brand, remains to produce a lot of instruments, produces a lot of instruments, and some of the other brands include JMAR, which was eventually taken over and bought over by Seanhood as well. Michel Zon, which is now discontinued, but I happen to have one here on stage with me. Kawaii, which are quite rare, certainly in this part of the world. And also countless other lesser known varieties from different areas and different parts of the world. So if you happen to have an interesting vintage toy piano sitting unused in your attic and you'd like someone to play it, let me know. So you can see here an image, a photograph of Albert Schoenhut and a little vintage Schoenhut piano uh, that is pictured there. So we'll take a closer look in just a moment. Uh, and uh, when, you, when you look at a toy piano, you will see, of course, that visually it very much mimics the big piano. And toy pianos can also act as sort of a playful introduction for children, who might be still too young for piano lessons, but just to help them get acquainted with the layout of the keyboard. However, the similarities pretty much stop there. And as we will learn, these two instruments are in fact very, very different and much more distant than we might imagine from just looking at them. The toy piano also possesses one very important trait that is lacking in its big cousin, and that is portability. So as you can imagine, I can't really take a big grand piano with me on tour, although of course, perhaps there is a handful of elite pianists who can travel with their own grand, but this is rare, let's say. Uh, but with toy pianos, I, I could do that. I could pack my toy pianos, travel with them, uh, and also bypass practical considerations. So I might perform in environments and venues where there is no piano or where a piano cannot possibly be taken in. Uh, such as uh, a tropical rainforest or a natural cave system. And I've played in these kinds of places with toy pianos, which is really exciting for a pianist. Unlike with the big piano, we also have the choice. We can pick and choose and select specific instruments for specific pieces that suit them well. Whereas with the big piano, of course, we kind of end up having to work with whatever is available at a particular venue. So let's begin by looking at some of the differences. And first of all, the mechanism of the toy piano is of course very different. One of the most common mistakes that is made by composers and performers who are approaching this instrument for the first time is the assumption that it is just like the big piano, but small with a smaller range. And of course it's true, the keys and the range are certainly smaller, and this also makes it surprisingly difficult to play for a pianist used to a certain length and width of the key. However, it might be psychologically easier to just treat them as two completely different instruments, each with its own set of challenges, and each requiring a different set of skills and technical considerations for performance as well. Instead of strings, of course, we have the metal rods that we already talked about. And normally these days you would have plastic hammers striking these metal rods. Um, so the sound we get is very characteristic and percussive. It's very different from the strings in a big piano that are played by hammers, wooden hammers covered with felt that are activated from the keys. Uh, 
so you can think of a toy piano as something like a big thumb piano. So maybe you might have seen or come across uh, thumb pianos with metal rods that you pluck and play with your thumbs. It's a kind of a similar sound, similar technique. The performer also has absolutely no control over the resonance. Once the keys are struck, they continue to ring for several seconds and uh, there's nothing we can do to shape this resonance. Uh, on the big piano, we have the pedal, we have dampers so we can cut off resonance and stop it. We have no way of doing this on a toy piano, so it's kind of luck of the draw there. What this means is that as a pianist who trained for years in certain techniques, I have to completely throw some of these things out the window and relearn how to play. For example, the whole idea of playing legato or smoothly joined to make a melody or staccato or short. Uh, this just doesn't really work on the toy piano in the same way at all. So to illustrate these differences, I'd like to play you just a tiny bit of uh, the beautiful opening of the second movement of a classical piano work that many people know and love, Robert Schumann's Viennese Carnival Jest, Opus 26. So playing this melody on a regular piano, I can control the resonance somewhat. I can add pedal after I strike the key so I can prolong and shape the notes and make them sing. And I can also take a kind of a breath in between phrases by clearing the resonance and lifting the pedal. So let's have a listen. enjoy the rich bass resonance which of course wouldn't be possible in the toy piano because of the short range. And later on in this short movement I can also blur and connect notes by leaving the pedal down longer, just as indicated by the composer, to create interesting effects. So let's hear what this sounds like on the toy piano. it was the great pianist uh, Arthur Rubinstein who said that the pedal is the soul of the piano. So in this case, unfortunately, the poor toy piano doesn't have a soul. It's, it's very sad. So complex harmony or sustained melody, they're just not the strengths of the toy piano. And the most successful pieces written for this instrument work around these limitations in clever ways. The range of Dynamic contrast or loudness really varies very much for the toy piano, but generally is very, very limited compared to the big piano. The tuning is, as you may have already heard, very unstable. It also varies greatly from model to model. And the problem is, while it's possible to tune toy pianos, it's very tricky. And usually we just don't do it because it would involve filing rods or adding bits of metal to them. So not really worth the hassle. 
However, there is still something very special and charming about the toy piano and uh, the sound is really interesting. It has something that is perhaps lacking in its big cousin. So I would like to demonstrate this by playing you a tiny movement from a set of pieces originally written for another keyboard instrument altogether, the carillon. And these instruments are usually found in big towers, uh, ringing bells over cityscapes. You can see the image in the background of my next slide. You can see the keyboard of this instrument. So the keys are played uh, with fists. So a very, very different technique. Composer Henk van der Fleet has a set of pieces dating from 2017 called Confetti for Carillon. And I transcribed some of these for the toy piano in 2020. So the bell-like ringing kind of timbre of the toy piano is very well suited to emulating those bigger bells. So let's hear one of the movements from Confetti and then we'll hear it on the piano, on the big piano, just to contrast the two again. So we really get a sense of ringing bells in this excerpt. If I play this on the piano, uh, I, I'm curious what you think, but to me it sounds sort of a little bit too simplistic and sort of plodding along and, well, maybe not as interesting as on the toy piano. the charm is lost with this added resonance that we get on the toy piano. So let's go back in time now to the first piece of concert music ever written for toy piano. This is the 1948 suite for toy piano by American composer, innovator and mushroom enthusiast John Cage. Originally composed to accompany a dance work by choreographer Merce Cunningham, the five movement suite uses only nine notes. It's very, very limited and it was written masterfully for a truly miniature toy instrument that had only white keys. So some of you may have had a similar toy as children and I'm going to just hold this up here. So this little instrument that you can see literally has black keys painted, drawn on in between the white in the cracks. So it's really just to create a visual analogy of the keyboard, but in fact, it only has white keys. The tuning of this particular model is also rather special and it's, it's really, really tricky to play. It makes me feel like I have huge, fat, giant fingers that just can't really fit in between the keys. So Cage was, of course, no stranger to working with limitations uh, in order to find creative solutions. And the famous example is the prepared piano that he created by experimenting with inserting objects in between the strings of the piano to obtain sounds of a whole percussion orchestra because a real percussion orchestra couldn't fit into the performance space. Cage went on to write music for amplified toy pianos in 1960, which takes an entirely different and very theatrical approach. In the suite, Cage also has theatrical elements. He goes as far as to indicate wildly contrasting levels of 
dynamics ranging from very soft to very loud. And of course, this should be taken with some humor, especially on a very limited instrument such as this one. There is also mysterious notation indicating, for example, sudden key releases or silently held tones. And the latter effect is completely lost on the toy piano. Holding down keys silently does nothing to the resonance, unlike on the big piano, where you would have some sympathetic string vibration. But we can say that this notation influences the physical gesture of the performer and this way the visual impact of the performance. So let's listen now to the first two movements of the suite for toy piano, uh, played on the very, very small toy piano we have here. So if you would like to hear my recording of the complete suite for toy piano, as well as the music for amplified toy pianos, you can listen uh, on my Nexus recording of the John Cage keyboard works. So Cage's idea of theater and visual gesture of the performance that I mentioned earlier is very important uh, here, and especially when we're performing with this instrument. We can say that by its very nature, the toy piano is already quite theatrical and requires a visually unconventional approach uh, through demanding that the performer sits down on a miniature bench, for example. So this act of uh, sort of crouching on the floor is slightly undignified in front of the audience. And we can say it's in stark contrast to the kind of a majestic silhouette of the open wing of the concert grand piano. So this very different way of performing acts as a, 
an invitation to the audience to also participate in the performance, making it more intimate and drawing listeners in. We can say that traditional barriers between the performer and the audience are minimized in this situation. And the performer is also reduced in stature and just can't help contributing to a very unusual and interesting situation. Humorous and quirky titles in more recent toy piano compositions seem to reaffirm this as well as humorous approaches. For example, we have Snug as a Bug in a Rug by uh, toy pianist and composer David Smook from his suite called Toy With Me for two toy pianos. Uh, we also have theatrical performances by composer and toy pianist Phyllis Chan, who fries an egg during one of her performances. And uh, we have a piece by composer Alexa Dexa, who instructs the performer to synchronize with a working microwave in the piece called Microwave Background Radiation. This way of performing can perhaps also be seen as a rebellion of sorts against the weight of tradition that we might associate with classical piano repertoire. For example, we know that the majority of elite classical pianists have traditionally tended to be male, while the growing world of toy piano performance at the moment is predominantly female. Musicians such as Margaret Langtan, who was described as the queen of the toy piano by the New York Times, Phyllis Chen and Isabel Ettenauer have very busy and active toy piano performance careers. And uh, one question we might ask as well, could this be in some way also harking back to the time when women carved out their own private musical spaces with portable instruments such as spinets, clavichords and virginals? And this of course could be a discussion for another evening. However, this weight of tradition with concert piano repertoire is clearly felt by men as well as women. Composer Karlheinz Essel writes, at the beginning of the third millennium, I had a strange encounter with a strange instrument, the toy piano, which at first didn't attract me that much. After being forced to dedicate myself to this instrument, I soon understood that it has nothing to do with the piano as we know it. When I hit a key on a regular piano, I'm not just hearing a note, but also the whole history of the instrument with its repertory from Bach to Boulez. This fact always makes it difficult for me to compose for piano as it always reminds me of historical music that I love and also abhor. This didn't seem to happen to me when I was playing on the toy piano. The resulting sense of freedom led Essel to compose at least 11 pieces for toy piano to date, many of which combine the instrument with intricate electronic processing as well. One of Essel's most frequently performed pieces contributed to what we call the toy piano revival in the early 2000s. So this, uh, this time, this period of time followed a bit of a lull in toy piano composition where the toy piano as a concert instrument almost slipped into obscurity after the John Cage Suite. During this time, however, in the early 2000s onwards, uh, new pieces for toy piano started appearing uh, kind of like mushrooms after heavy rain, and this is an intentional John Cage pun there. Karlheinz Essel's Kalimba was one of these pieces. It was written in 2005. In this piece, the performer places a portable loudspeaker inside the toy piano. So this is connected to an MP3 player, and the live performance is synchronized with pre-recorded and live sounds that are blended together appearing to come from the same sound source. And of course, I just gave away the, the whole effect, but it's really quite magical if you come to a concert not expecting it, and then you hear this strange, amazing sound coming from inside the toy piano. So the blending of the two sound sources creates really interesting and complex oral illusions through very simple means. So let's listen to the beginning of this piece.
So Karl-Heinz Essel's Kalimba, just a little excerpt. While Essel magnifies the capabilities of the toy piano through electronics and also asks for uh, the biggest model possible, which is the one that I played on, the 37-key Schonhut, the theme of working with limitations and simplicity still very much applies, still very much present. Other pieces that explore this idea of limitations uh, work with even smaller toy piano models and in even smaller range. One of these pieces is a work by Erilyn Wallen called Little Wonder from 2008, written for pianist Kate Ryder. This piece by a composer who is no stranger to toy pianos and incorporated them into several of her works, explores the childlike innocence of the instrument while also introducing quirky, unexpected harmonic elements at the end. And perhaps we can say that the reduced pitch range and the reduced time scale of the piece as well uh, mirror the miniature size of the instrument. So I'm going to move on to the Michelson toy piano that I have sitting over here. Little Wonder by Erilyn Wallen. Another composer working a lot with the toy piano is Ifat Sol Zisso, who has written many, many pieces for this instrument already and is very active, continuing to create new works. Restlessness from 2020 was written during the first lockdown of that spring and evokes a, a more edgy atmosphere. So we're starting to explore the more kind of sinister nature of the toy piano here. The instruction for the performer at the top of the score of this piece is to play as if uh, feeling anxious, but trying to keep it all together. So let's hear that piece and I'll go back to the Schonhut for that.
Restlessness by Ifat Sol Siso. Cleo Montre's Barcarolle from 2009 also plays with these slightly sinister overtones, highlighting the mechanical clicking and clacking of the toy piano action, uh, together with knocking sounds made by the performer that brings to mind the slightly creepy associations of toys and music boxes with horror film soundtracks. So let's hear this piece and I will use the Michel song again for this. So it was Barcarolle by Cleo Montre. One final tiny, tiny miniature that I would like to play uh, that also has this uneasy atmosphere is by composer and playwright Eilish Nurian. In this case, the composer seems to do away with any of the kind of more cutesy aspects of the toy piano altogether, weaving a more starkly unapologetic chromatic sonic tapestry. Uh, Elish Nurian has two pieces for toy piano, Soberado and Anomaly, so I would like to play Anomaly. So all of these pieces so far have been very, very short and uh, explored the limitations of the toy piano. However, uh, while the toy piano definitely does reduce textures very well, it can also be used in more complex ways. Michael Finnessy elaborates material in his piece Sonata for Toy Piano from 2006 with uh, kind of a more opulent harpsichord style Baroque treatment. We have trills and decorations. This piece weaves delicate rhythmic complexity together with silences uh, and is a sort of an allusion to the keyboard sonatas of Domenico Scarlatti. So harpsichord illusions definitely present there.
Sonata for Toy Piano by Michael Finnessy. At the same time, toy pianos are definitely capable of virtuosity and power, hard as that might be to imagine. And this can be achieved through building up clever combinations of tones. Composer Ed Bennett does this in his 2014 work called Crazy Legs. And Crazy Legs was apparently the name of a break dancer. In this piece, uh, we have this wild outburst that goes through the whole range of the instrument. And then the ending comes back to utter simplicity using only white notes. So we can see this almost as a, a reference to John Cage coming back to the origins.
So that was Crazy Legs by Ed Bennett with a little bit of heavy metal for the toy piano there at one point. So we've reached the end of our time together. We learned about some of the differences between toy pianos and grown-up pianos and explored also some of the whimsical and theatrical characteristics of these quirky little instruments. If you would like to learn more about weird and wonderful keyboard instruments, then tune into my next lecture, which is on Monday the 7th of June, featuring the magical magnetic resonator piano. I'm going to leave you with just a few seconds from John Cage, Sweet Toy Piano, Last Movement. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you very much for a fascinating lecture and this incredible virtuoso performance you've given us this evening. It's been really extraordinary. And um, you won't be surprised to hear you've got um, quite a few fans and quite a few <laughs> questions as well. And um, if you're happy, I'll just ask you a few of them. Um, the first one, several people want to know the answer to this. They've obviously been very inspired are Michael Stones still manufactured to this day? If yes, where? What's the best way to find them? And are they expensive? Okay, great question. <laughs> so uh, this, this beautiful little upright toy piano, the <clears throat> Michel Son, uh, unfortunately is discontinued. But we can still find them secondhand. So you might be able to find on eBay and so on. Uh, my suggestion would be just to keep looking uh, and eventually one will show up. I don't actually own this one, so this was lent to me by Kezia Decote Rodriguez, who is also a pianist and toy pianist. And um, the price range depends, so I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. Um, I would say they're not super cheap because these are now vintage. So if you want to buy a brand new toy piano, of course you can pick one up very, very cheaply. But for this particular brand, because it's it's, a, it's, a, it's discontinued, it's a little bit rare. I think you'll be paying a little bit more. I don't know if that helps answer the question. <laughs> Thank you very much. <clears throat> now, there's some, there are a couple of people here who would like you to describe the playing technique for a miniature piano. Well, first of all, you have to admit that and accept that you will fail <laughs> because it's just it's impossible to be accurate really 100% on those instruments they're so unpredictable sometimes for example you play a key even if you play it correctly and your giant fat fingers fit correctly uh, it might just still strike the the rod next to it so sometimes extra resonances and things like that happen so we can't really control exactly what we're doing um, but generally um, Playing light and detached, I find works a little bit better. Um, on the other hand, because of this unpredictable resonance and because you can't do anything to, to stop it or change it, it means that you can also leave your hands, leave your keys, fingers on the keys longer than notated. So sometimes if you need to rest the hand, it can be helpful not to worry too much about taking them off because you know, it doesn't matter if you take your fingers off, nothing changes. So, yeah, there's, there's a bit of practice that goes into it. <laughs> so this, this question sort of follows on from that. Um, are the keys not arranged in a pitch from low to high as on a normal piano? In that last piece, he thinks it might be called Crazy Legs, it sounded like there was a note played by little finger of left hand that was higher pitched than the keys in the middle of the keyboard. This is an excellent question. It sounds very weird, but I know exactly what you're saying. So the toy piano spectrum of the sound is very bizarre. And 
it's in fact it's enharmonic it's like it's like a bell the rods behave like bells so they behave in unpredictable ways and sometimes we hear higher components of the sound so even though i was playing a note in the bass register some of the higher partials perhaps sounded stronger so it sounds like it's a higher pitch so i know what you mean so yes no the keys are arranged from low to high, like on a regular piano. But sometimes we have weird, crazy oral illusions happening because of these kind of partials that pop out, if that makes sense. So yeah, really, really unpredictable listening experience as well. I think you might have actually answered this next question in your last one, but I'm gonna ask it anyway, just in case there's anything else you want to say. Um, the question is, is there a particular kinesthetic quality in the physical playing or quality of sound that toy pianos make that you find particularly appealing when playing them? That's, that's an amazing question. That really makes me think. And I have to kind of wrap my brain around this. Um, I, I think it's difficult because every toy piano is so incredibly individual. And even as we heard tonight, we have three different models they are different, but this particular one, the Schoenhut, I have exactly the same model that sounds completely different and feels different to play. So um, you have to kind of be ready to adjust and change your playing approach depending on the instrument as well. Uh, but in terms of the other part of the question, what if, if I find something aesthetically appealing, um, I do like the sound. I think it has some really interesting characterful kind of quirks to it. And I love the fact that it's, a, it's such a theatrical performance by its nature, uh, but it also does drive me mad after a while. So I have to, I have to be honest and say, it's a sort of a love-hate relationship. So yes, aesthetically pleasing, or you know, sometimes I go through a period of playing lots of toy piano and then I think, okay, enough. <laughs> now I need to rest. Now I'm going back to this beast here. So yes, it's this bit of give and take. I don't know what did everybody else think if you uh, could you listen to toy pianos all day long or do you feel like you need to take a little break? I would imagine the latter. <laughs> I think well, <clears throat> people have been um, making various remarks in the chat and you can perhaps have a look at that afterwards. and You'll get a feeling of what people are saying. Um, just one last question, um, if you don't mind. Um, and that is that before John Cage, were toy pianos just treated as toys? Or are there any earlier composers who wrote music for the instrument? I believe that um, toy pianos as we know them today were, were basically treated as toys. So I believe that John Cage really is the first kind of formal concert piece that we know of. Um, of course, composers used toy instruments in different guises much, much earlier, well before that. But in, in terms of the toy piano itself, as far as I'm aware, but if anybody knows differently, please let me know. It's always great to learn new things and perhaps we can unearth some toy piano pieces from the past. Well, that's all we've got um, time for this evening. Uh, but I'm pleased to say that um, uh, Dr. Pestova Bennett uh, will be returning, as she's just told us, on the 7th of June at 6pm. Her lecture, which is amazing sounding, um, is called Cyborg Piano Magnetic Resonance Piano. And we look forward to that. But in the meantime, thank you very much for an excellent lecture this evening. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.